SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. In the news at 1 o'clock, Water Affairs says 60% of Mototlung now has water and Uganda joins forces with the South Sudanese military. Good afternoon, I'm Kirit Lala. The Water Affairs Department says it has managed to restore water to 60% of Mototlung in Brits in the northwest. The community embarked on a protest on Sunday over a shortage of water in the area. Three people have been killed during the protest, allegedly by the police. Residents of areas in which water has been restored have complained that it's not clean. The department spokesperson, Mava Scott, says it looks like they will meet the deadline set by Minister Edna Molewa to fully restore water by tomorrow. We are now at about 50% uh, restoration of supply on the normal flow to the reservoirs. So we are heading towards 100% as the minister promised uh, by tomorrow. Um, if everything works well, we should be uh, at 100%. The technical teams, uh, both from the department and the municipality, are on the ground um, fixing the second pipeline that was damaged to ensure that there is a, a, a fully restored uh, supply of water in the entire area. Former President Nelson Mandela's grandson, Mandla Mandela, has been formally charged with assault. He appeared briefly in the Mtata Regional Court in the Eastern Cape following a violent incident which allegedly happened in October last year. The SABC's Nkululeka Nyambizi reports. Mandela Mandela was accompanied by his team of defense attorneys. While on the other side of the court, a group of complainants' family was seated quietly. Senior public prosecutor Jongikaya Pusakwe presented a docket detailing two charges including assault with intent to do grievously bodily harm. The second charge was pointing a firearm. In October last year, Mandela Mandela allegedly assaulted 44-year-old teacher Mlam Lingule after he allegedly bumped into a car driven by one of Mandela Mandela's business associates. A war of weights allegedly broke out and later there was manhandling and alleged firearm pointing. Mandela Mandela's defense attorney advocate Kenny Oldwage told the court that as his client and team of attorneys only received the docket this morning, they need more time to peruse and scrutinize the contents of the docket. The case has been postponed to the 24th of February for further consultation between the defense attorneys and the NPA. Mandela Mandela is out on warning. A two-year-old child has died after being bitten by a black mamba in the Nongoma area in northern KwaZulu-Natal. Police spokesperson Tulani Zwane says another child is in a critical condition in hospital after being bitten by the three-meter-long snake. He says the two had been playing near their home when the incident happened. Nongoma police have opened a case of inquest after a, a small child was bitten by, by a snake to death. Uh, one is still in hospital and the other one died later and uh, the case has been open for presentation. Parts of Nordcliffe and Fairlands in Johannesburg are experiencing power outages. Johannesburg City Power has blamed the outages on cable theft. City Power's Solma Solo says technicians are working around the clock to restore electricity to affected suburbs. The power interruption is caused by a cable fault and our electricians are currently working in the area. Uh, we're doing everything possible to make sure that we'll restore power before the end of the day. City Power apologizes for any inconvenience caused to customers during the duration of the power interruption. Uganda says its troops have joined forces with the South Sudanese military in the war against a rebellion in the world's newest country. Ugandan officials had previously denied that their troops had joined the fight. The Ugandan forces are helping loyalist forces to flush rebels out of Bor. The strategic town near the capital Juba has seen some of the fiercest clashes since violence broke out in South Sudan last month. The crisis in North Su- South Sudan was set off by a power struggle between President Salvakir and Rik Mashar, the fugitive former deputy president who commands rebel forces. And on a lighter note, researchers in Britain say they've confirmed what many had already suspected, that comedians are a little bit mad. The BBC's Helen Briggs reports. According to psychologists at Oxford University, comedians think out of the box to such an extent they have mild features of traits associated with mental illness. 
Compared with people in non-creative professions, male and female comics have an unusual personality structure marked by being both highly introverted and at times very extroverted. Comedians may use performing as a kind of self-medication, they say. Recapping the top story at one o'clock, the Water Affairs Department says it has managed to restore power to 60% of Motutlong in Brits in the northwest. For SAFM News, I'm Kirit Lala, back with headlines at 1.30. Otherwise, on SAFM. Hello, Mzansi. Welcome to Otherwise on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Shadow Twala, Lono Abofani and President Machaya are my technical producers today. And you ask me why? Well, one is in Johannesburg and one is in Cape Town. And Hazel is not feeling good today. We wish her well. I hope she comes back tomorrow. Should you wish to contact us, please call 0892-102010 or email us on otherwise at safm.co.za. Otherwise, on SAFM. My first guest today, I'm honoured to have her in the studio, South Africa's ambassador to Thailand, Miss Ruby Marks, who joins me now in our Cape Town studios. Ma'am, welcome to Otherwise, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, and a very warm welcome to all of your listeners as well. It's good to be back home. Are you on holiday, or is it... You're not on official business back here. It's it's kind of a working holiday. We we tend to be on duty 24 hours, so so one ear is always, you know, perched towards waiting for the phone to ring to 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 get us back home but i'm trying my time just to make sure it is a holiday yes now you from the cape flats which which part of the cape flats is it is it the dusty bit of all all of it is dusty actually <laughs> <laughs> yes um i i am from the cape flats mm-hmm. i'm very proud to to be to be called that mm-hmm. um uh, actually my mom was a domestic worker here in cape town i grew up on the um uh, playing, you know, on in Seapoint flats all over, you know, because my mom was working here, um, and then proceeded to to live in various back- backyard dwellings all ac- all across the Western Cape in Eitzig, Kalkstenfontein, Bishop Levers, Balbul South, um, and eventually um, moved into a council flat. Actually, um, I call it Balbul South, but colloquially and locally, you know, we call mm. it the USA. <laughs> You know, so that gives you a sense of of the of the township feel of mm. the place, um, and it's a council flat that um, that um, of course is characterized by extreme poverty, um, um, a sense of helplessness, particularly mm. amongst uh, matriculants right now, which is also partly why I'm here, um, because I think that my story would resonate mm. a, a great deal. You know, with many, many young people who perhaps did not pass their matric exams or or was unable to get into college or university mm. of their choice uh, because of money problems. And, and I'm essentially here to say that actually you can do it. It takes time, perseverance, tenacity. And perseverance, by the way, is that, is that hated word that... I always got in my in my school report card, <laughs> you know, persevere, persevere. But you actually can make it. But let's go back to when you grew up, and I don't know if you've been back now. Just to mm. to compare, has it changed much? Have circumstances changed for those people that live in Belvis South? Not a great deal has changed. One of the things that worries me about the Western Cape. Um, apart from the fact that I still feel as if I need a visa, you know, to come to my own hometown, you know, um, is the fact that it really is what Charles Dickens would have called the tale of two cities, mm. you know. Um, on the one hand, you have a Western Cape that um, aspires to be a world capital and ease that. Mm. Uh, the fact that we were named as... Um, the place to visit by the New York Times, you know, number one. Number one, too, yes. Absolutely, you know, incredible brand awareness of the Western Cape and its beauty. Um, But very little is South Africa can also benefit from that. Absolutely, and we need that money. Tourism creates, one tourist creates eight jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, so we need that. But at the same time, um, what concerns me is that there isn't a a balanced uh, um, approach to the type of development that also has to accompany this wonderful exposure and brand awareness that we have in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so when I go back to the USA, Bowel South, my hood, 
um, I find that um, there's a sense in which people feel that this is not their city. There's a sense in which people feel that they've been left behind. Mm -hmm. And that worries me because, you know, we're now celebrating 20 years of our democracy. Of course. You know, as time for reflection, as time for thinking how far have we come. And if we live in a city that does not have at its center a concern that is animated by those people who are really poor, by a single woman who was, you know, like my mom was a domestic worker. If her life has not changed, then what does that mean if we have all of these accolades, you know, um, that we've been able to garner? But so, whose responsibility is it? I think it's a responsibility that is shared both by policymakers within the Western Cape, mm -hmm. by those people who decide what the development priorities are for the Western Cape, mm -hmm. but it's also, of course, a, a responsibility of the self. My yes. mom would, you know, one of the things that my mom always said to me, because I loved pointing a finger, <laughs> you know, she would say to me, yes, you know, one point, you know, one finger is pointed at me, the other, you know, four points back at you. Mm -hmm. And so she taught me a lesson very early on in my life about the relationship between my right to criticize, but also my responsibility yes. to make sure that I do something about whatever it is that I criticize. And so I'm incredibly grateful that I've been taught that lesson. You know, I've been encouraged to be critical. I've been encouraged to take responsibility as well. And so part of my concern of what I call the tale of two cities, you know, do we really, are we concerned about that woman sitting in the Cape Flats who's, who perhaps have been retrenched, you know, mm. um, the matriculant who was unable, and in fact did not even believe that they could pass, you know, the, the exams. You, you grew up within the same uh, circumstances, I'd like to believe, or even worse, maybe during the apartheid years. How did mm. you overcome? Mm. Um, because again, it, it, it was so much a tale of two cities even then. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. did you overcome your, your challenges and overcome um, the, 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 the situation that you, you, you found yourself in? Mm. I think that firstly for me, you know, I, um, my, my context where I grew up, you know, the fact that my mother struggled so much, you know, to put bread on the table, etc. Um, the ordinary everyday sexism and sexual harassment that a young girl would experience. You know, um, the fact that um, that things like career guidance was a was a privilege um, um, that I was not really exposed to at school. I had to dig very deep within myself, you know. So Were they role things, models at all? Not really. I think my mother, first, first of all, was my role model because she was incredibly strong. Um, uh, she was very brave. She did what she could with what she had, as so many other working class women do. But I think that what helped me was that um, my my environment shaped my, my political consciousness, mm -hmm. you know. I made connections between what other people perhaps would take for granted. This is the way things are supposed to be. I made wider connections between the personal and the political. And I understood that what I saw around me, you know, the poverty, the marginalization, the exclusion, mm -hmm. the absence of hope, you know, um, that these were all things that, um, that were man-made and that could be changed, you know. And I want so, to talk about that realization because mm -hmm. that is what turns somebody's mind around. That, that, that is the paradigm shift right yes. there. And yes. we, we often miss it because we mm. talk about it a lot. We talk about realizing and that, that, that aha moment when, mm. when, you can, when you can distinguish between, you know, the, 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 the way things are mm. and the possibilities that exist. Mm. What happened? How, how did that happen for you? Actually, it, it crystallized for me in a, in a, in a particular moment, and then I'll share two moments with you. Mm. Um, one was about race and identity. At the age of about four or five, my mom gave me a doll, you know, and mm -hmm. she was white with blonde hair, blue eyes, etc. And I looked at this doll and I realized I do not look anything <laughs> like what is supposed to be beauty, you know. And in that moment, I thought, hmm, I may not be pretty in terms of, um, 
of white terms, mm. you know, because that was the dominant uh, um, benchmark of beauty and still is, you know, but I can be smart, you know. And so I spend a lot of time in the library just reading, soaking mm. up knowledge, you know. I think that the other thing that also happened to me, um, which was very, very important, you know, the fact that we, you know, small things, waiting 13 years on a waiting list for a council flat, you know, those were things that, that helped me to realize that um, there are people who have access. Um, there are people for whom their privilege is inscribed through their race. Um, there are people who who, um, who can automatically, you know, expect that particular things will be given to them yes. um, easier than others. And I began to ask why. And so, you know, I think often mother's despair of, of toddlers saying, why, mommy, why, mommy? <laughs> and it's such an important uh, question. It's an incredibly important and question. And often we never answer that question when kids ask. Absolutely, because working class mothers are so tired. So all you want to say is, you know, because I say so, yeah. you know, or just go and sit in the corner. I was fortunate because even if my mom was so tired to answer the question, I would go and seek out, you know, the answer. From and who? so, from books, from just looking around me. You talk about reading. What sort of books were you reading? Because I, I, oh, I want the kids to read those books, know, <laughs> you know, that they I turned know. you around like this. You yes, Do you remember yes. any one of them? Yes. I was, a, I was a pretty voracious reader. I still am. Mm. You know, I believe that books open up opportunities within your life at, at and within you, and if it gives you the, the ability to dream as well. Dreaming is often a luxury for, for working class people, you know. Um, often you find that um, a teacher would say to you in class, don't daydream, you know. But that is often the, the kernel, you know, of beginning to imagine yourself somewhere else, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And if we find ways in encouraging the imagination of our young kids, but you've asked me a question about books. I still live by Alice in Wonderland, you know, through the through the, through the, the looking glass. Mm -hmm. I still live through the idea that um, that um, there's a world of wonder out there. There's a world that we have to explore. I have a huge sense of curiosity, you know. Mm. I'm, I'm curious about the world. I wanted to find out more. But also I knew that this way I was placed at that particular moment in time, you know, because like many other children, because uh, of course when my mom left um, working in service in Cape Town, she, uh, she worked at various factories. And so I was a latchdoor kid, you know, um, and I was left alone often. And I had to deal with my fear of the boogeyman and who could knock at the door, sure. you know, and um, and always the fear as a young girl of being raped, of being violated, etc. So so books became part of of of, um, of something that protected me, mm. that, that helped me to escape as well. Now I I need to ask you about the 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 young girl mm. who's listening to us now. Right who has probably not managed to get to school at all mm. or get to her matric successfully mm. and is sitting feeling sorry for herself because she's out in the Cape Flats, mm. Um, mm. the dusty streets that are not safe, right. that are not, she feels trapped. Mm -hmm. What do you say mm -hmm. to her? You know, as, as, as something that I'm, that I'm very, very familiar with is that feeling of, of just feeling that I was trapped, that, that, that made me begin to think, how do I get out of this? I think that what saved me was knowing that, um, that I have a dream, you know, um, that I wanted to, to get out of this poverty trap. But I also knew that there was very little on offer. You know, at mm -hmm. the time, um, you know, getting a bursary was very, very difficult. Um, I, for example, you know, I had to go and work for two years after matric. Mm -hmm. I went to work at a clothing factory called Monvisa. You know, Monvisa, I think it still exists. And I was paid about 27 rand um, a week, you know, and I had to suck it up. So I, I think you got do... more for your first job than I did for mine. Did you? Yeah, I think ah. I got 70 rand a month. <laughs> For my first job. <laughs> yes. And so, and so I realized very, very quickly that um, I need to think about my situation differently, you know. Um, and for me, the reality check was that 
I had to let go of where I thought I should be and come to terms with where I was at that particular moment in time. And so for that matriculant, you know, I would want to say to her, for now, you know, um, work with what you have, you know, um, hold on to your dreams, but realize as well that right now there are things that you that you may have to do that you do not want to do, mm. whether that means volunteering to work at an at okay. a non-governmental organization mm. that will not pay you money but will give you free training and will give you work experience, mm. whether it is um, taking an internship you know, at one of the many government departments who's offering that right now, mm. again, working for less money than, than you thought that you would work for, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but you're taking the opportunity, you're taking the first step. Um, in my case, of course, working for the clothing factory was not what I had in mind for myself. And so I'm saying this because, you know, part of my, one of the jobs that I also did was to work as a packer you know, at one of the um, uh, uh, um, many shops that we that we have uh, uh, in the Western Cape. And so I had to I had to learn to 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 reach as hard as I can for the dream that I knew that I that I deserved. And I had to say this cannot just be a dream. It also has to be a plan. And I had to take a long term view. So what were the steps that I had to take immediately right now to, to, to get me there? Mm. And once I had that plan, it became it became much, much, much easier. Yeah, so, so a step towards your big dream every day absolutely. Is, is what one absolutely. ought to do. But I need to ask you, and let's compare and, and to the country you're working in right now. Mm. You're doing work in Thailand mm. and... Mm. Uh, I, I I wonder if we can learn anything from the mm. young people in Thailand mm, mm. Uh, to to our young people here, or not only in Thailand, right. um, in other parts of the world, because yes, yes. it's also important to to see that our situation mm. with our young people is mm. not isolated to South Africa. Absolutely, uh, the young people all over the world, and how are they dealing with their challenges? Yes. Are there models that we can look at there yes. to to see? Yes, y you know um, that's a really good question mm. because it's important you know sometimes because we live in South Africa we think that this is the world mm -hmm. and we become very insular you know and we compare ourselves to ourselves which is always which is not a very good thing to do mm -hmm. one of the things about Thailand you know it's a country of 60 million people more or less the same mm -hmm. as South Africa um, they have a, an unemployment rate of 0.7 percent <gasps> You know, one of the, in fact, it's the fourth lowest in the world today, you know. And the reason why they have that low unemployment rate is because their society is a society that is incredibly resourceful, mm -hmm. you know. There's a sense that um, I need to take responsibility for my own life. And so if it means um, working in a rice paddy, if it means, um, you know, um, selling noodles, whatever in the street, it takes, whatever it takes, you know, to earn a living. But there's also a sense of self-sufficiency, you know. Yes, government is there and they offer particular um, social protection uh, measures. Um, but at the same time, there's a sense of, you know, if it's to be, it's up to me, you mm -hmm. know. So mm -hmm. it starts with the self. But also, you know, there's a, there's a great sense of, of, um, of a different type of kinship. And I think something that we've lost in South Africa. And this kinship is about, is about helping each other, you know. And Let's go Thailand, back to Ubuntu here. Yes. And mm -hmm. in Thailand, I found um, a value that I've always lived with, you know. And that is about lifting as you climb, you know. Ensuring that as you, as you move forward within your own life, you also find ways of creating opportunities for others mm -hmm. to also move forward. Mm -hmm. You would find entire families, for example, working in one particular business. And so a huge sense of entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship a sense of self-sufficiency, a sense of I'm responsible first of all for myself and then I look towards, you know, what else is available for me. Those are probably some of the lessons that we can, that mm. we can learn from. It's throw the rope back as soon as you climb over the Absolutely. wall. Just really throw it back. And, and I, I like the fact that we, we're talking about the same thing that, you know, government can put whatever it 
puts in place mm. and everybody else can put you know they can take you to the water but they can't make yes. you drink yes so yes. you have eventually uh the responsibility to 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 shape your life right um you know earlier on before you came into the studio i started talking to you about us concentrating mainly on girls mm. and 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 yet when we talk about young people uh we 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 should include boys as mm, well and, mm. and and the importance of not separating the two mm, because mm. then we we see the rise of this violence uh, against young women right, and right. you know it's it's it I think it's the young men retaliating as well as mm. as well as the older men how do we bridge that gap mm, and and and, and mm. put them together and think about mm, them as a mm, unit mm. i think firstly for me you know because I've, i've worked with with women for a very very long time you know i self identify as a feminist and with the other people choose to to call themselves that as long as you believe in social justice and equity you are that mm. but you know a rose by any name <laughs> um but but for me it starts with an intergenerational dialogue that older women like ourselves need to have with younger women mm. i think it's also about understanding the reality of young women today My reality was very very different than yours as well, mm. you know. We were born into a context where it literally was a, a, a case of um you either fight for your survival um or the consequences is just um extreme poverty and mm. um you know, so in a sense we were forced to 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 mobilize ourselves, you know, be part of organizations etc. and that was a wonderful um learning curve for us it shaped our consciousness it shaped our our integrity it gave us values that that still lives with with many of us but i think that you know when you look at young people today i get so irritated when people dismiss them you know because mm-hmm. we don't understand what it is that shapes their consciousness you Calling know them the lost generation absolutely mm-hmm. what utter nonsense mm-hmm. you know young people want to be involved you know but we have to help to shape that involvement and so for me at a very practical level it starts with with you know for example knowing what music they listen to you know um telling them and reminding them that there's other musical forms that speaks to a social consciousness but well, we've taken music away from schools we don't I teach know. music at schools anymore it's just not part of our curriculum anymore yes, and i want yes. it back so yes, much absolutely it has to come back but at the same time you know young people are listening to music and mm. we must shape their their choices mm. you know I remember uh, Mr. Devious for example from Michel Splain who was the brother of Black Pearl you know um he did amazing work in in the prisons you know for example um unfortunately is not with us anymore but he had a social consciousness which infused his rap you know um which led to awareness you know and there's other groups as well like black noise mm. i also fondly remember kodesa for, <laughs> for example of my i don't think that they together anymore no. but all of those are examples of what shapes consciousness but we have to see it in that direction i think the other thing that also that i find also very interesting is the fact that so many young people are active on you know with social media mm-hmm. you know we have to get over this technological phobia that we have you know and almost leaving it up to the young kids you know to engage with that um no i've jumped in there I, um, I, in I'm, i'm on twitter oh, so that i know what's going on i'm, I'm everywhere because <laughs> yes, i yes. won't be left behind doing yes, that yes. listen we're going to run out of time but um and i'm not too sure if you could comment on this you, mm. you we find a lot of uh the association and all the things we read about about thailand is when mm. some of our people have been arrested mm. as as drug mules yes, yes and i just thought maybe just paint a grim picture of mm. what it takes to be arrested mm. in thailand mm as 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 one of the things that we live with you know as a mission mm. day after day currently we have we have tens of africans sure you know who are serving sentences ranging from 6 months to to 25 years not all of them for drug trafficking but mostly young women and it's incredibly sad because of course for us they are part of our extended south african family you know we go and visit our prisoners our inmates and our family every 6 weeks um but do you personally time, go i personally go if i can mm-hmm. i can't always do that but mm-hmm. every 6 weeks they will get a visit 
and we assist him with other things as well. One of our inmates is now um, uh, currently studying through INISA, you no, know, uh, communication studies. Um, so there's all kinds of things that we try and do, you know, to ease the situation. I have a particular concern about young women who, because of poverty, you know, gets pushed into making choices. Um, that um, that leads to, 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 to quite bad consequences. I want you to hold that thought because mm -hmm. now we're going to take news headlines with Kirat yes. Lala. Thank you, Shadow. In the headlines at 1.30, Water Affairs Department authorities have assured residents of Motutlung in Brits in the northwest that the poor water quality in the area is a temporary problem. The National Director of Public Prosecutions has questioned a detailed report on the withdrawal of fraud charges against Durban businesswoman Sean Mpisane. And police in India are searching for more suspects wanted over the gang rape of a Danish tourist in the capital, Delhi. Details on these and more at 2 p.m. Otherwise, on SAFM. It's amazing how time flies when you're having a good conversation. Uh, Ruby Marks is my is is my um, guest in the studio. She's South Africa's ambassador to Thailand. And uh, just before we went to news headlines, uh, we were talking about young people who get get attracted or who are who are poverty stricken enough to be attracted to uh, trafficking drugs, and what the consequences are. Mm, and it's, it's pretty, pretty horrific, you know. Mm. It's um, um, it's incredibly sad to listen to these women. But at the same time, from our side, we try to 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 hold our position of um, of close contact with our inmates um, uh, with responsibility. So we do quite about a lot of about a lot of work in just in terms of encouraging them um, um, to to begin to think about making different choices. Um, reminding them that um, that really is about falling forward. You mm. know, yes, you made a mistake, but what do you want to do with the rest of your life? You know, and so we 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 formed a mini family. You know, um, and there's a great sense of sisterhood and and just kinship amongst mm. and between us because again, it's not easy. I think that what helps me is that I had also. Um, um, serve time in detention and so I know what that experience of being in prison can be like and so I draw from that because I understand what it mm. is that they are going through mm. um, yes your last word word of advice to young people just just one thing again from my own experience I want to address the myth of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps mm. there are so many people when I say that I work as an ambassador you know they 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 listen to that with a great deal of awe you know, because of course it's an incredible privilege. Mm. But at the same time, um, we also know that um, that when you talk about bootstraps, you almost exceptionalize yourself as if you were the chosen one. I want to as say... As if you have those boots in the first place. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Shadon. Uh, many people don't have those, those mm. boots to put onto their feet in the first place. To teach our young people to have a sense of enoughness you know how much do I really need you know do I need branded clothing do I need a particular kind of car the values that animate our Constitution speaks to values that is about you are because I am it mm. speaks to values of enough for everyone a better life for all and so we need to instill a sense of values within our young people that says, you know, um, um, I have to define my own criteria for success. You know, it may not be that I can become an ambassador. It may not be that I can become a doctor. Mm. But what can I do where I am in order to make sure that my personal definition of success is inscribed by a sense of I want what is enough for me. Mm. I want what is enough for my neighbor, etc., etc. Because there are hierarchies of privileges that we create within our minds that makes us envy what other people mm. have. That's you dangerous. know, so a sense of enoughness is critical. Thank you. Well.
I, I, I haven't had enough talking to you, <laughs> but, you know, we, we'll, we'll catch up with you another time. Thank you so much, and yes. we wish you all the best with your work in, in Thailand, and thank you for representing SA in a, in a great way. And I don't know what you're doing for, to, 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 to reflect on 2014 in Thailand, but whatever it is that you do, we wish you well with it. Thank you so much, Shadow. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Thank Good you, to listeners. see you again. Well, otherwise, and, and, and when we come back, we're going to take a little song, and then when we come back, Talking South Sudan. Books and stories. Words and language. Reading writing, and reflections, all on SAFM Literature, with me, Nancy Richards, every Sunday on SAFM between 1 and 4. Make it a date. SAFM is your radio station, so we want to hear what you have to say. We value your inputs and opinions on our programming. The format works for me well. In fact, my day won't be complete without SAFM. And why have you got a SABC representative on that program? It's, it's for editors. Not SABC rep. I love these signing programs. I love hearing everybody's comments. You know, it seems that SAFM is becoming the voice of the dominant global elite, you know, not the ordinary uh, man in the street. I think SAFM is doing a pretty sterling job. Email us, jozi.safm.co.za. Fax us on 011-714-5829. Or comment on our Facebook page, SAFM Radio. Thank you for taking the time to provide us with your feedback. This will be carried forward as we think about the future of SAFM's programming. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Something inside me so strong. Well, you know, it, it, it's a relevant song done by Lyra and, uh, you know, also probably relevant to my next guest. Sudan has been in the news recently due to heavy fighting between rebels. This has had a huge impact on the populations there, especially on depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, etc. Well, clinical psychologist Gail Wormersley, as part of the Doctors Without Borders team, spent last December working with war survivors. And she joins me now in our Johannesburg studios to share her experiences. You are such a brave girl, Gail. Welcome to Otherwise. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. Shadow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you, you've been with MSF, um, that's Doctors Without Borders, since 2012. What drew you in initially? I think there, there are two factors, one personal and one professional. I think that's what everyone considers when looking for, for a career path. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I've always been fascinated by the world. As, mm -hmm. as cliched or trite as that sounds, <laughs> fascinated by different cultures, by different languages, by having different experiences. From a professional perspective, I've always been drawn to trauma, post-traumatic stress. As a clinical psychologist, it's mm -hmm. really been one of my interests. And, and I see also you're doing some research, which is part of your passion, in, in the subject of sexual and gender-based violence. Yes, that's right. We've done a lot of research here in South Africa. 
Mm-hmm. And what I'm really hoping to do is to use the the skills, the experience, the knowledge that I gain abroad and bring it back to South Africa. What have you found so far in your research? I've been fascinated by the fact that people are people, no matter where you are in the world. Mm-hmm. So the way in which I see survivors of rape in Cape Town, for example, how I see them react is very similar to how I see women in a small village in South Sudan mm-hmm. or in Pakistan or wherever in the world it may be, that at the end of the day, people are people and we have very similar ways of, of processing emotion. Now, I, I'm trying to understand why you put yourself in situations where the, the, there's, there's war and, and, and the survivors. Um, I know you want to help as much as you can, but I, I just try to understand why you can't do the work elsewhere. It's a good question. It's something that I'm I mean, trying you could to sit understand myself. <laughs> of course. You could sit here in Cape Town and just do <laughs> Exactly. And it's not to say that in, in Cape Town or other areas in South Africa, there isn't suffering, there isn't trauma. Mm. Of course there is. It's a question I had to ask myself. You know, people would say to me, there's such huge need in South Africa. Why go away where there's so much work to be done here? In your now, own country. Where you are, you are mostly in danger. Because, you know, you are in danger as well as you try to do this work. That's right. But I think part of it is the fact that you are in a situation of danger or an unusual situation means that that specific population has very little access to help. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what draws me to the work is that you can have such a direct impact So you're dealing with populations and communities that otherwise would have absolutely no access to health services and mental health services in particular. So when you packed your bags to go to South Sudan, uh, (laughs) what were you expecting to find? Did you have a plan in mind? How you're just going to just because you've done this work before in different countries. But I don't know how that prepared you enough to go into uh, South Sudan. Well, funnily enough, I had very little time to prepare. So I was meant to be in a different project in another part of the world. And that closed for various reasons. So I was told, well, unfortunately, you cannot go to this project. But Mm. how about South Sudan? I said, sure, why not? Just like that. Just like that. So it was literally, (laughs) (laughs) I remember literally being given a day or two to decide, pack your bags on the plane. I had to run around and find new clothes. (laughs) What do you pack, actually, when you You go? You pack very light. It's something that I've learned. I think it's a good lesson metaphorically as Mm -hmm. well, to Mm -hmm. pack very light. Do Do you get to know what the weather's like, what the conditions are like, what you need, any vaccinations, any, what, what, how much time do you have to sort of gather all that information? Yes, absolutely. And of course, normally I would have had more time to prepare and we get briefed very well. Part of that would be a medical briefing, for example, the general context, the cultural context, all of that is taken into consideration before I depart. Mm. So, so you don't know where you're going. You know, though, you know, there's a plane that's going to drop you somewhere. <laughs> yes, pretty and, much. And when you when you get there, what 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 do you read in the situation, or do you just get there and it's all systems go? You know where where to be stationed and that sort of thing. Uh, on the one hand, it's all systems go, and I often meet with the person in the field who has been working there beforehand mm. in my position, mm. which is very helpful. It's all systems go. Sometimes it helps that you actually do not have too much time to think. Okay. You just arrive. There's such an obvious need. You have patients referred to you and you just do the work that needs to be done. On what the other hand, I do think that one needs to take time to respect the local culture. Mm-hmm. I think it is a mistake to go there guns blazing. Exactly. You are here, you're going to save the world, whatever it is. You have the answers. You are the the Messiah who's coming to make everything better. And of course, that's not true. In South Sudan, I really had to learn how to take time to understand the culture, to understand the people there. 
But you didn't have much time either to do that. Well, yes, that's a, it's a tricky balance. <laughs> <laughs> but the little bit of time you had, what did you understand about their needs, about their people? Because you don't speak the language, do you? No, I was working through a translator. Hmm. And what I had to understand is that this is a community that has suffered through years of trauma. Mm. Of course, we're looking now at the most recent conflict, which has erupted, which is in the media. Mm. But but conflict has been going on there for so many years that it's a way of life. And I saw it with groups of children. I saw it with the women's support group that I was running, Mm. that people have had to adapt themselves to this traumatic way of life. Do we understand anything about um, just the cultural differences between the male and female? Because I I think women and children usually are the victims and mostly the victims and and, and maybe survivors in a a way. But I'm trying to find ways of understanding why we, we the men don't protect their women. The men, you know, women and children often get killed in these wars. Do we ever understand why... um, the, the, there's no kind of care for for what happens to women and children? Absolutely. I think it's a very tough question and it raises a lot of ethical dilemmas. I remember running support groups for women in the community in the small village in South Sudan. Many of them had not had the opportunity to be heard mm. and I saw my role there as just to bear witness to the suffering. Mm. Um, some things that I found incredibly hard, for example, was the place of women in that particular culture. Many women in the group had lost their husbands. Mm. And culturally speaking, they would automatically marry the brother of the husband. The next in line, yes. The next in line. And I think this is quite common in many different cultures around the world. And in South Africa as well. Even in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that it's it's right or wrong, but of course, as a feminist, I see this and it's very hard for me not to come with my own preconceived ideas mm. about the role of women. Um, women getting married very young as teenagers, marrying much older men, being forced into marriage. And as you said, even in South Africa, this is happening and it's difficult to... To find the right answer to that. Mm. I'm hoping your research takes you there eventually, you know, so so we, we, we maybe it is some of the answers for the gender based violence, you know, and sexual violence that women and children experience around this country, especially. But I think in, in, in different parts of the world where there is a war. So your experience, you've arrived and you you kind of hanging in there and doing what you have to do. And of course, you've got to run at some point because you, you had to leave very unceremoniously. Absolutely. It was, it was devastating having to suddenly leave without being able to say goodbye to patients, to local staff that I had been working very closely with. For how long? How long are you, have, have you been working? I was based there for two months. Okay. So it wasn't a particularly long time, but of course you, you understand the people. You've built, you've built relationships. You've built relationships there. And we were literally given, you know, 20 minutes to pack your bags, go to the UN compound for protection. Mm-hmm. And the following day I was evacuated. So it was a very sharp departure. And, and traumatic for you? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. you couldn't say goodbye? Because I couldn't say goodbye. Because there was so much uncertainty. Because you, we see these things on the news, but suddenly it's personal. So wh- what do you hope to do? I mean, do you, do you keep in touch with those people that you couldn't say goodbye to? Do you, do you spend sleepless nights not knowing what has happened to them? Do you try to track them and, and, and find out, you know, the, what their plight was? Uh, I think all of those. There's certainly been some sleepless nights. I'm lucky enough to be in contact with the team. So Doctors Without Borders still has many people on the ground in South Sudan working. Unfortunately, in our particular project, we've had to leave for security reasons. Mm -hmm. So when you say your particular project being what? So this is in a tiny village, a town in Jangle State called Mm -hmm. Gumaruk. And we've had to leave this particular village, this particular hospital uh, because of security and okay. we have people working in Juba, but unfortunately, up until now, it has not been safe enough for us to return. 
So, but you, you have kept in touch. Do you think you'll go back? I would love to go back. <laughs> I hope <laughs> I will one day. No, not now to connect with the same people that you had befriended. Well, it's it's a, a very difficult question because we've had to reduce the team. So in this situation, what they do is try evacuate as many people as possible for their own safety and mm-hmm. security. Of course, that's the main priority. And then they would send specialized emergency teams who have experience in dealing with this conflict situation. Mm. Yeah. Now, the, the children and the women, uh, with your translator, what, what, what sort of programs did you run with them? Um, obviously, they're, they're depressed, they're anxious. Uh, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand how you ease their minds, if, if you could, you know, in, in, in giving them hope and, and, and in giving them some tools to work with. Uh, during the war? Absolutely. I mean, my focus was definitely on that, on giving tools to work with coping mechanisms, fostering social supports Mm. in the community. With children, for example, what we would do is run play therapy groups. And I would take a doll Mm. and say, this doll has had a terrible experience. His father was killed in the conflict. He had to run away. He was scared of the bullets. Now he has nightmares. Now he's very sad. Now he doesn't want to play with his friends, for example. Mm. So we look at the common symptoms that children are experiencing and we use the the doll to make it a bit safer for them. So I would follow that up with saying, who here has a story like this doll? And Mm. of course, the vast majority of children would raise their hands. So then we explore, okay, what nightmares are you having? Uh, when were you crying? What makes you sad? And what makes you better? You know, mm. I think it's a mistake to go in there and open up the traumatic experiences. Without leaving a solution. Without leaving a solution, exactly. Mm. There mm. used to be this common thought that one should go in there and debrief in as much detail as possible and unpack the experience as deeply as possible. And actually now research is showing it's much better to rather focus on the coping mechanisms, Mm. rather build that person up and leave them with a way to survive. Gail, it's been wonderful talking to you. I salute you totally. And I don't know if you're ever back in Cape Town, but please do come and see me because I think we've got major, major things to talk to you about because you've had experiences uh, in many countries and even worked in prisons. So, you know, we'd like to share that information with our listeners as much as possible. So anytime you're in town, please do stop by. Thank you very much. I would love to come. And, and, and don't take too many risks, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we need you <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming into the studio. It's a pleasure. Take care. Wow. Wow. I take my hat off. Uh, Gail Wormersley, who's a clinical psychologist working with Doctors Without Borders. It's time now for Shop Shop. Shop Shop Children's Program on SAFM with Leon Fisser. A little shop shop, it's shop shop. Hello everyone, how was your first day at school? I bet it wasn't as scary as you expected. Admit it, it was a little bit of fun, wasn't it? Maybe even a lot of fun. No? Really? Just wait till you start making new friends. You know, I met my best friend in primary school. Hey, I think Storybook is here to tell us a story. Is everyone ready? Here we go! The Scared Little Dinosaur by Tinky T-Rex It was the first day of school and Dina the Dinosaur was very nervous. Now, you may wonder what a dinosaur has to be nervous about. But you see, Dina was a very dainty dinosaur, no bigger than a horse. And that's really quite small for a dinosaur. Dad, I don't want to go to school, Dina moaned as she ate her eggs. I want to stay here with you. But why, darling? Dad asked. 
I don't know anyone at school. Dina groaned as she pulled on her jersey. Well, you'll get to know them, said Dad. But, but what if they don't like me? Dina mumbled as she fetched her school bag. Of course they'll like you, Dina, Dad smiled. You're the sweetest, kindest little dinosaur I know. But what if they, what if they don't want to be my friends? Dina grumbled as she got into the car. Then you be their friend, said Dad. Dina was quiet all the way to school, but when they pulled up in front of the gate, she wailed. I don't know how to make friends. All you have to do is smile and say hello and be nice. It's easy, you'll see. Really? Dina asked as they walked to the gate. Really, really, Dad smiled. Then Daddy Dinosaur gave Dina a big dinosaur hug. Off you go, he said. I'll be back to fetch you later. I promise. Dina stood at the school gate. All over the playground, little dinosaurs were running and playing. There were tall dinosaurs and small dinosaurs and pink dinosaurs and green dinosaurs and even one big grumpy looking dinosaur standing all by himself. He looks mean and scary, Dina thought. I hope I don't have to sit next to him in class. Just then, the school bell rang and the teacher came out. She had strong legs and a stout body and had the longest neck Dina had ever seen. Dina gasped. That must be Miss Apato. She's huge. Dina trembled in her school shoes. But then the teacher spoke in the sweetest, kindest voice Dina had ever heard. Come in now, children, she called. It's time to line up for class. Everyone ran to line up. With her short little legs, Dina couldn't run very fast. She was the last to join the line. And guess who was right in front of her? The big, grumpy dinosaur. Dina was more nervous than ever. Hello, children, the teacher said. I'm Miss Zapato. Welcome to the first day of school. Now, I'm going to call out your names and I want you to go inside and sit down at your desks. I will need a volunteer, though, to help me show everyone where to sit. She walked down the line. You, young man, she smiled, pointing to the big grumpy dinosaur. What's your name? The big dinosaur looked down at his feet. Danny, he grumbled. Will you help me, Danny? The teacher said. The big dinosaur looked up to the sky. No, he mumbled. Please, the teacher asked nicely. The big dinosaur's cheeks turned bright red. I don't want to, he sniffed. And he turned away from the other dinosaurs. The teacher tutted and she walked back up the line. Only Dina could see Danny's face. And what she saw surprised her. Because there, on the big, scary dinosaur's cheek, was a big, shiny teardrop rolling sadly down to his chin. <clears throat> she plucked up her courage put on a smile and said softly, Um, hello. What's the matter? <clears throat> I'm scared, said the big dinosaur in a small voice. You? Scared? Whatever for? Dina asked. Well, <clears throat> I'm scared no one, no one will like me because I'm, I'm so big and I'm, and I'm clumsy and, and what if no one wants to be my friend? The big dinosaur wailed. Dina thought for a moment. Then she said, Hey, I'll be your friend, if you like. Danny's face lit up. Really? he said. Really, really, Dina smiled. And from that day on, they always sat next to each other in class. And they became the best of friends. And that was an awesome story. Thank you so much, Storybook. Hey guys, I know the perfect song for us to play out with. Bye bye for now. Enjoy school.
If you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say, try a smile, say hello. My name is so and so. If you feel a little scared, if you feel a little shy, hold your head up, crack a smile, put your hand up and say hi. If you wanna be a friend, well you've got to be a friend. There's nothing like a bestie, there's nothing like a bro. If you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say, just make a smile, you'll make a friend. The show was produced by Kim Winter, Cassie Lowers, and Ricardo McCarthy, with scriptwriter Bjorn Fenter. That's it from us at Otherwise. Thank you to my guests, uh, Gail Womersley and Ms. Ruby Marks. Thank you to Lom Nwabofani and President Machaya. It is now time for SAFM News with Kirat Lala. It's 2 o'clock.